battle going on for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. And good evening. Good evening and welcome to Ladies Can We Talk. Thank you so very much for tuning in. You know, all of you this week, this is Debbie George Addis, your host on Ladies Can We Talk. This week, I'll bet every single person listening to this radio show heard that John Boehner had a few choice remarks about one of the presidential candidates. And John Boehner, again, the former Speaker of the House, uh, ousted by his own House members, his own GOP House members. And he was interviewed at Stanford. And John Boehner referred to Senator Ted Cruz, really one of the only two remaining candidates in the GOP presidential primary, referred to Ted Cruz as Lucifer, which means the devil. And he also uh, really pretty much unloaded on him, talked about he's uh, just used very rough language about Ted Cruz, said he's a mean old and SOB and all, all sorts of very, very harsh terms. And the reason I want to talk with you about that tonight is I think that obviously John Boehner thinks he is influencing the... Um, the presidential cycle that people are actually going to get upset about what it is he said, and they're going to somehow turn against Ted Cruz. I want to just tell you why, and this is the answer to the question, why would John Boehner say such a thing if it were not true? And this is the answer of why he would say it, even though it's not true. And that is this. John Boehner, along with many people in the GOP establishment in Washington, worked very hard to establish themselves in power in Washington, to live in the, as Ted Cruz commonly refers to it, the D.C. cartel, they're the insiders, the elite ruling class. And when Ted Cruz came along, when Ted Cruz went to the United States Senate as a victorious senator after his Texas Senate race and stood up for the things he said he would stand up for, when he, Ted Cruz, was willing to go to Washington and actually fight Obamacare, not just say he would fight Obamacare, not just promise he was really going to do something about Obamacare, but actually do it, this caused extreme upset within the GOP. And the reason is because Ted Cruz's conduct in being willing to stand strong in the Senate and actually to cause, to bring about the temporary shutdown of government as a means of trying to force the, the effort to shut down Obamacare, to stop Obamacare. When he did that, Ted Cruz's conduct let the world see what the GOP is really all about. Ted Cruz forced the senators in Washington to either stand with him and do what they all told their voters they would do too, which was to fight President Obama, to fight Obamacare, or to have to go back on their word to their voters and stand against Ted Cruz and his efforts to defund Obamacare. Ted Cruz led the charge in Washington to stand for principle. He made the Democrats, excuse me, he made the Republicans in Washington look bad. Ted Cruz started and he was one of the instigators, not the instigators of the Tea Party movement, but the broader awakening in the American people that said, wait a minute, we work hard to get conservatives elected and you never stand up. Ted Cruz started the hashtag, make DC listen. He raised the awareness in millions and millions of Americans around the country that their elected officials in Washington were not listening to them, were not 
doing what they said they would do. And Ted Cruz made the John Boehners of the world look bad because enough people got to Washington and joined on Ted Cruz's mission or at least went along with him. And pretty soon the elite, the John Boehner ruling class of the House, his unwillingness to fight, his comfort settled into his establishment elite role was obvious to the people. John Boehner is the one who lost his uh, his seat. Not only, he could not win re-election for Speaker of the House. He ultimately decided to step down and leave Congress. Now, again, to be clear, Ted Cruz doesn't know John Boehner. And yeah, I think that, that became clear afterwards, but Ted Cruz was a senator. John Boehner was the Speaker of the House, two separate houses in Washington. Ted Cruz has said since the time of these ugly remarks by John Boehner, I made I maybe said not even 50 words to him in my entire life. Ted Cruz could not vote John Boehner out of the speakership. What happened was Ted Cruz raised Americans awareness to the point that John Boehner could not sit fat and happy in his seat in Washington any longer. And this is part of. And so he was forced out by his own GOP colleagues who realized John Boehner can't lead us anymore. We need someone who can lead and lead the conservatives in a better, stronger way. So I'm telling you, folks, when you hear this language out of John Boehner, you have to know this is precisely John Boehner's attitude. His notion of just being outraged that somebody came to Washington and pointed out to the American voters that the GOP in Washington never listens to the people. This is why John Boehner said that. And this is why the John Boehner attitude. This is why out of a field of 17 GOP candidates for president, the only two left standing are the two outsiders, Senator Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. And the reason they're left is because people want somebody like a Ted Cruz, someone like a John Boehner to, excuse me, like a Ted Cruz and Donald Trump to fight against the establishment. This is Debbie George Asson. Ladies, can we talk? I have some amazing data to share with you right off this break about how much the GOP presidential race is wide open. It ain't over yet. Come back after the break. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addison. So glad you've joined us. This whole show, Ladies Can We Talk, is all about the idea. It is, of course, political, but it's really about the idea, the fundamental notion of re-embracing the goodness, the greatness, uniqueness of America, and trying to connect everything we talk about and the issues facing America, including the political campaigns, tie them back to the idea of perpetuating the reasons America's great, perpetuating our great country. Well, I want to tell you something. Uh, and the subject of where we are in the GOP primaries right now, we actually ha- we have a big primary coming up on the GOP side this coming Tuesday in Indiana, and a lot of it rests on it on both sides and the within the GOP. I mean, with the two remaining candidates, and I'm not. Oh, yes, I guess I am ignoring John Kasich, but the serious candidates who have a, a possibility of winning the nomination are Senator Ted Cruz and Donald Trump. Okay, so I'm back backtrack and tell you that I went to a. Um, my husband and I went to a Dallas GOP, the Reagan Day dinner, uh, which was a while ago. It was earlier this year. And um, when we got in, a friend of mine cornered me just as I was sitting down at my table. And before she even said, hey, how are you? She said, you have to back. I am backing uh, um, Marco Rubio and everybody has to back him. He's the only one who can possibly win. And if we don't get behind Marco Rubio, it's all over. And then I just said, you know what? 
I don't agree with you. If you want to actually talk about it, I'd be happy to talk about it. She just walked off. So then I got an email this week from a friend, someone who listens to this show is a friend of mine, and she emailed to say, to say, you have to get behind Donald Trump. I'm listening to your show. I always listen, but you know, he's the only one, the only one who can win. And so I tell you those stories because I do think there's a need on the conservative side. We all want, we all want someone to defeat Hillary Clinton this fall. Everybody wants that. And I want to just urge this idea of taking a deep breath just a little bit and look at a few numbers. Now, I am well aware that numbers do not play well on radio, and I never try to quote numbers without them in front of me because I'm afraid I won't retain them. I want to just share a few facts that maybe can help us all take a deep breath about this. First of all, I want you to realize how badly Hillary Clinton is performing in this election cycle. I mean, it really matters to get this. The enthusiasm on the GOP side in the primaries across this country is much bigger than the last election cycle. And on the Democrat side, the numbers are way, way, way down. And this isn't just one primary. It's over and over and over. Just one example, South Carolina's Democrat primary, where you know Hillary was touted as a big victor and she won the Democrat primary in South Carolina. The turnout of Democrats was down by 30 percent, three zero, 30 percent since 2008. Similarly, in Nevada, Democrat turnout dropped nearly 30 percent for the Democrats. New Hampshire down 13 percent. Iowa was down just under 30 percent. My point is that the turnout, the Democrats are not enthused about Hillary Clinton, We need to stop talking about her as though she's inevitable, as though she's this big leviathan and who we could never stop her. We need to realize she's unpopular for a reason. She's unpopular because the policies she stands for have been in place for seven plus years in America and people don't like it very much. People are not happy with the direction of this country. And on the other side of the aisle, on the GOP side, the turnout is extraordinary. The turnout of people showing up at the GOP primaries, just a few examples, same state, South Carolina. Democrats were down 30%, Republicans up 20%. Similarly, on the Republican side, New Hampshire, GOP turnout up 14% on the GOP side, but down 13%. For the Democrats. Now, I could read a bunch more numbers. I'll put this up on the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. But that's my first point in this segment that there is zero enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton in this election cycle. But even more important, I want to tell you we've had a lot of discussion and we're going to talk in the second hour about whether or not people who are saying, well, Ted Cruz should just drop out because after all, you know, Donald Trump seems to be winning a few more elections than Ted. And that could not be more wrong. And plus, I want to tell you what. Some of the numbers, I just think these are staggering and they're really important things for you to understand. And I always talk about and I do my different speeches all over the place to take some talking points, have them ready and be ready to say them. Here's just one rather staggering thing. Ted Cruz, the GOP candidate for president who won in Wisconsin. So he won the Wisconsin primary. Ted Cruz got more votes in Wisconsin, with its tiny population, than Donald Trump got in New York. Think about the difference in population. And, you know, Ted Cruz got more votes in Washington, in Wisconsin than Donald Trump got in New York, but Donald Trump got more delegates out of that. So he's ahead in a delegate count 
because it came from New York, even though he got fewer votes. Another staggering number, if you think any person is inevitable, certainly Donald Trump is not. In New York, in New York, Donald Trump got fewer votes in the year 2016 than George W. Bush got in the Republican primary in the year 2000. Just think about that. New York has grown in population and Trump has fewer voters than George W. Bush got. And, you know, even this big sweep of the eastern states, people were talking about, wow, you know, look at how cool it was. You know, uh, they had the five primaries in one day and the 26 and Donald Trump won all of them. Just a few little stats to just kind of kind of blow your mind. Okay, one is Trump. Donald Trump won the state of Rhode Island, by winning 39,000 and change, 39,000 votes. Just in Dallas County, where we are in Dallas County, Texas, Ted Cruz got 61,000 votes. Again, just in Dallas County, Ted Cruz got 61,000 votes, obviously many more in the state of Texas. Trump got 39,000 in the entire state of Rhode Island. Donald Trump won on fair and square one, April 26th, on the five states and that, that busy day of primaries. But he won in states that, with the exception of Pennsylvania, are going to go Democrat in the fall. And, and Pennsylvania might also. He won in states with small Republican population and in states that are going to go Democrat in the fall. So acting like somehow winning these states, and if you think, by the way, that Donald Trump is going to win New York with those kinds of numbers, it just, well, I, I don't know what you've been smoking, but that is, could not be more wrong. And the reason all this matters is these elections this year, this election is extremely important for America's future. We have watched the country go downhill under President Obama for seven and a half years by almost any measure imaginable. We have our military vastly diminished. They are below World War II level readiness. We have extraordinary debt growing and and we have no end in sight to the growth in debt. We have a massive increase in the number of people who are reliant on food stamps and other forms of welfare. We have a society where fewer people are paying taxes. We have a... a, a, just a porous border in the South. We have no serious immigration policy, which we're going to talk about in the next segment. I'll tell you about in a moment. We have, we have immigration policy. It's a mess. We have the American people righteously and rightly indignant and standing up for their country. And that's what all the, where all the energy is in this election cycle. The energy is with the people who want their country back. It's why Donald Trump and Ted Cruz are popular, because both are standing up against the establishment, standing up for the ideas that that motivate conservatives, that motivate Republicans. We're in a time when we have to have a strong leader stand up for this country, a strong leader who is willing and able and determined and fearlessly going to say, we're going to turn this country around. There is not energy on the Democrat side to perpetuate Uh, President Obama's legacy. There's no personal energy for either of the Democrat candidates, for Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders. So instead of the internal fighting on the GOP side, instead of the hysterical, angry postings on Facebook and Twitter from the Never Trump crowd, the Never Cruz crowd, um, the I'll stay home if I don't get my guy crowd, we better realize a lot about this country's future is at stake in this election cycle. And Whoever you like, whichever person you like better on the GOP side, 
is mountains, is leagues better than what the Democrats will bring us. But we spent too much time this election cycle with the never Trump, never Cruz, said it wrong, never Trump, never Cruz, with the battle for and the, the battle of false accusations, the battle of making stuff up about the other guy, the National Enquirer writing fiction and posing as as though it somehow is deserves a label of journalism. This is what we have in, on the inside of the Republican Party. We've got to stop this. You know what? At the end of the day, someone's going to win the Republican nomination. And at the end of the day, in November, someone's going to win the GOP presidential race. I tell you what, folks, it needs to be our side. But even if, heaven forbid, even if Hillary Clinton wins the, the, the election this fall, our job as conservatives, as lovers of liberty, as lovers of America, is to keep on fighting for the ideas that the GOP and the conservatives stand for, is to stand up for the ideas of America, whether a, your personal, your candidate gets it or not. That's the long-haul battle we always have to be in as those who love liberty and freedom is to stand up for America. Okay, we're heading off to a break. After our break, we're going to have on the show with us this evening um, a uh, friend of mine, actually, and another local talk show host grant stinchfield to hear what he thinks about changing his mind about donald trump come back after the break and welcome back to ladies can we talk this is debbie george avis i'm so glad you've tuned in tonight we have a guest with us on the line tonight and this is a actually a friend of mine i've known for several years and actually i think i've been in his radio show but this is a dallas uh, radio host named grant stinchfield hi grant Hi, Debbie. It's great to be on with you. And yes, you have been on my radio show. I thought so. Okay. Well, you know what? I uh, had emailed Grant earlier in the week, and I wanted to talk with... uh, I'll just quick tell our listeners. Grant is a radio host. He's a business owner. And he also ran for U.S. Congress uh, in 2012, I think, in Texas District 24. And so he's been through an actual primary. Um, And so I thought it was really interesting. that, And and he's just a political activist and a conservative. So... Grant, you wrote a column that was appeared, actually got printed in the Federalist called I Regret Voting for Donald Trump. And I thought it was interesting that even a person would take the time to write that up versus just think about it. So what made you want to write that? Well, you know, I write a weekly a weekly column called Grant's Rant for, for 570 KLIF and, and the Federalist picked it up. And, and uh, I, I just felt like I had to put on paper my frustration with the Trump campaign and why I was originally drawn to it. And, and I mean, the bottom line, there was one quote in, in that article that I wrote, was that I let my anger get the best of me. And I was convinced that, that Donald Trump would hire great people, and that he was this great CEO, he was going to surround himself with great people, and he, and he was going to find the good conservatives to join his campaign. And though I knew that his conservative credentials were questionable at best, I thought that my whole burning desire to just blow up Washington as we know it and stick it to the ruling class of career politicians up there, who better to do that than Donald Trump? But here we are seven months later, and he's put nobody of substance around him. There's been no real policy advancement with Donald Trump, and he makes me very, very nervous. So, so now I regret voting for Donald Trump, and I actually put in a column that I apologize publicly to both Governor Scott Walker and Governor Rick Perry for not giving them the chance they were due early on. Well, I think it's so interesting what you say about Donald Trump's campaign, because I think a lot of people who are 
Tea Party supporters or just conservative uh, members of the GOP. They're conservative activists. There has been growing during the entire two terms of President Obama's presidency, just a growing grassroots um, frustration with Washington. And in part, it is with the American left, the direction that President Obama is taking this country in terms of you know, heading towards socialism and big taxes and, and poor uh, and weak foreign policy. Just name your issue. It seems to be on an Obamacare. But on the right, the frustration has been not seeing the GOP in Washington stand up for the principles the party claims it stands for, for the, for conservative principles, which I think is part of why you ran for Congress, right? It is. And I, I just wanted someone to speak plainly to the American people. When I ran for Congress, uh, that was something I promised to do, that I was going to just speak in plain English and break things down in a form that was very, very simple. And when Donald Trump broke on the scene, he was doing that, and he still continues to do that. And he has some tremendous attributes, and I think it's refreshing to see a guy that speaks speaks his mind. But this far down the road, when you're speaking your mind and having to retract the next day, you're not knowing what you're talking about, um, it, it's, it's upsetting to me to see this. And, and Ted Cruz, who I think, Debbie, when I was running for, for, for Congress in 2012, um, I was a supporter of Ted Cruz. I think you supported Ted Cruz yes, in, I did. In, in that run. And, you know, I watched him today on, on the Fox Sunday morning with Chris Wallace show. And I watched him there, and he did what every politician do. He didn't answer one question directly. Not one. And I said, what is happening? Is Ted Cruz now turning into to a career politician who just will not talk straight to the American people? And so I'm totally frustrated. Uh, and I will support whoever is the nominee. There is no doubt about it. And I think every Republican, every conservative needs to do that. But uh, there's a complete frustration with me right now. Well, yeah, that answer of questions is interesting. Even on the debate stage when we had 17 candidates running, some of them seem to do a fairly good job. of. And I really, I, I kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, hold Carly Fiorina in especially high regard on that subject. It seemed like no matter what the question was, she went to the answer. She didn't try to say, well, thank you for the question. Now let me talk about something else. She answered the question. So I do think... People are frustrated by that. Um, I have to say, I, I did support Ted Cruz in his Senate run. And in this case, in this campaign, I have supported him from the start of this presidential campaign because I think he brings the combination of understanding the Constitution, and which I, I think is vital to restore our government or our constitutional government. Um, I do find that with many cam- candidates, and sometimes I do see it in Ted Cruz, that they're not answering the question. And I, I think that's something they all need to work on. But So let me ask you this, though. So here we are. I gave a speech yesterday, and when the Q&A part, this lady said, so... Um, and, and it was really just about preserving America and why it's great and how you, you know, how, why America is exceptional and how you hold on to it. It was really kind of more about ideas. So this latest question was, and I'm going to ask you this, Grant, said, so if Donald Trump wins the nomination, how do you convince people to vote for him? So I'm curious how you'd answer that. Well, so I asked people, is Donald Trump better than Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders would be? And now, if you take Donald Trump on the face of his word, which I don't even know that you can do, but if you do and you give him the benefit of the doubt, well, then clearly he's going to be better than Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton. Um, even if he goes back on his word, what we really need is a Republican president. So, so if we control the House and we control the Senate and we send legislation to the White House, at least we have somebody who can sign the bottom of that legislation and put it into action and hopefully repeal some of this other stuff that needs repealing. So, so the end result is... 
he's far better off than, than Hillary Clinton is going to ever, ever be. And, and if anybody starts talking about this idea that they're going to sit out the never-Trump campaign, oh, yeah. I, I think it is ridiculous because our nation's future is at stake. And I know we say it's the most important election of our time. This one is. But it is. Again, it is again. <laughs> again. Again it is. And so, look, both of these candidates have, have, have great attributes. And so what really angers me is the hatred and vitriol on either side. Look, there's no such thing as the perfect candidate. Ronald Reagan's not coming back from the dead, and neither is John Wayne. And so there's no perfect candidate out there. And so I would hope that the Cruz supporters, the Trump supporters, could see the positives on either side and say, hey, once we get to a final vote on this thing, let's get behind the guy and, and make something happen. And the fact yeah. that people would literally think they're going to sit on the sidelines or want someone to run as a third-party candidate uh, will hand the White House over to Hillary Clinton. Exactly. I'm so glad you're saying this because I've had the same, I was going to ask you the same question. So what do you say to Trump supporters if Cruz wins the nomination? But my answer yesterday was essentially the same as yours. You have to vote for the bigger picture. You have to vote for the party that's at least supposed to stand for the right things. And they've got a body of people in the House and Senate to back them. You can't just vote for the person. You have to vote for the ideals that should be higher than the person. Do you know what I think the supporters on both sides should take a cue from? They're both trying to out, out establishment the other, saying, oh, the Cruz supporters and Cruz are saying Donald Trump's the establishment. Trump is saying now Cruz is out. Let me tell you something. These two guys are so far from the establishment. Yes. Ted Cruz is not the establishment. They hate him in Washington. You heard what John Boehner said about him. And believe me, Donald Trump is not the establishment either. He may know how to work the system, but he is not the establishment. And they, they are having their nightmare scenario in front of them. And I truly believe that there are some Republican leaders in Washington who would rather see Hillary Clinton. Because you want to talk about the establishment and business as usual, that's what you're going to get with Hillary Clinton. You know, we have only about two minutes left in this segment, but I definitely want you just hit on what I wanted to talk about, which was a lot of commentary about the idea that some people in the establishment, by this I mean members of the U.S. House, who are geo Republican House, U.S. Senate, establishment in Washington, people would say... Donald Trump, either Donald Trump or Ted Cruz will so upset the apple cart here. I'll take Hillary. At least I know what to expect and she won't take me out of my happy, uh, to use Ted Cruz's term, my Washington cartel space I have. And we have about one minute, but I, I am concerned about that and I think it's crazy. You agree? I agree. It's completely crazy. I think we can throw out whatever any incumbent congressman says right now. Do you know they just voted the bison to be the national mammal? You know, we have ISIS we're dealing with. We've got a $19 trillion debt, and they're voting on the bison as the national mammal. Congress is whacked out, and they are messed up, and something's got to be done. So I wouldn't take their word for anything, Debbie. Well, I agree. And, you know, one other thought, and we really are real close to the end, but I tried to talk in the start of this show about the John Boehner statement, uh, that his Lucifer statement about Ted Cruz. And I said, what you're really hearing is the extreme frustration of the establishment because what what we ended up having the um, Ted Cruz do in Washington was expose on both sides in the House and the Senate, expose the fact that most of GOP doesn't want to fight on principle and Ted Cruz embarrassed them by fighting on principle. And I think that's what John Boehner is saying is, how dare you make me look bad? I don't know if you have, you have about 30 seconds. Do you have a quick thought about that? Well, you know what? It, it was the greatest compliment that Ted Cruz could have got. When I ran for Congress, I didn't get the endorsement from the Dallas Morning News. You know why? They called me a Jim DeMint conservative. And, you go. And boy, that's the greatest compliment you can get. 
Absolutely. Grant Stinchfield, thank you so very much for being with us today. Loved having Grant Stinchfield on with us. He's a local host and a good friend and a good political thinker. Well, right after our break, we'll come back. And I'm going to tell you that the University of Missouri, Mizzou, is discovering what happens when you they are paying the price of appeasement. Come on back and I'll tell you all about it. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie George Addis. I want to thank again my friend Grant Stinchfield. He is a local Dallas radio host. He ran for U.S. Congress. He's a serious conservative activist and thinker. And he wrote a piece about why he regrets his vote for Donald Trump. And our commentary a moment just before the break wasn't really about attacking Donald Trump. It was really about the idea of... When you're a serious activist, what you want to hear, when you're a serious patriot, a lover of America, what you want to hear is candidates telling you the policies that matter. You want to hear what they believe in, what they stand for, and just saying, make America great again, which is a fabulous slogan, isn't the same thing as having policies. And so what Grant Stinchfield was writing about was the idea, at some point, you're going to lose the support of actual conservatives If you can't come forward and articulate more, surround yourself with quality people, quality experienced people who can who can solve the challenges America has, you're going to lose the support of conservatives. But on the other hand, I will say, as he was saying, it's really important this fall. At the end of the day, no matter who wins the GOP nomination, the most important goal of the 2016 presidential election is to make sure Hillary loses it. That's what it is. Okay, I want to tell you in this segment, um, this, I try to, uh, you know, kind of cruise through the news, but I really want to hit on uh, one story I just thought had a lot of relevance, really, in today's political world. We all hear these various protests happening on campuses, and they have the campuses just filled with young people who are, you know, barely able to hear someone utter a word they disagree with, to speak about any idea that they don't like. We have we've built a we've created a generation in our college campuses who just need safe rooms if someone says it uses an expression they don't like and just a high sense of indignity and intolerance for any views other than their other than their own. So what happened at the University of Missouri to quick remind you if you've forgotten about this story in the fall of 2015, so just this past year, University of Missouri President Tim Wolf resigned and the chancellor named Bowen Lofton was moved to a different job. These people lost their jobs of prominence at the University of Missouri, which people call Mizzou, because of a student protest. The student protest arose because in the start of the year, one student wrote on his Facebook page that he had been the recipient of racial slurs yelled at him from a truck driving on campus. Okay, so I, I, I mean, obviously no one ever wants to hear the racial slur is ever, ever uttered in any place in the world. But so this young man posted this on Facebook. The students were outraged because the university did not take adequate action to respond, to investigate, to find it out. So a, you know, and there were a couple other also equally minor incidents. But because this lather of protests got built up to the point of just hysteria and the students at University of Missouri, you know, they tried to shut down campus. They had their, the football team players join in. They had professors join in all over this hysterical protest, which was basically based on nothing. And the president was criticized because during a time he was driving on campus 
or just outside of campus, his car was surrounded by an angry mob of students who demanded he get out. And I would say wisely, he declined to do that. He just said, I'm not getting out. And they found that offensive. We told him to get out of the car. He better get out. So now the reason I raise this now is that University of Missouri is having major, major economic and just support problems. They have in this particular um year a letter went out from the university of missouri uh, or from the i guess it's from the board announcing that they had to implement hiring freezes they didn't they have to stop hiring they also announced they have they're projecting a very significant budget shortfall in this coming academic year so we're here in may of 2016 so this is in this coming fall very significant budget shortfall due to an unexpected sharp decline in first year enrollment and in student retention. Let me translate plain English. Kids don't want to go there anymore. Their parents don't want to send them to that school anymore. They saw the idiotic capitulation by the board and whoever the administration is of University of Missouri to let a bunch of kids make a fuss and bring down a president and a chancellor and others and cause a major disruption of the money flowing to the campus and good parents who want their kids to go off and actually get an education at college say, you know what? I don't think so. I don't think that's a college. We're not going to go there. In addition to the fact that they they have a, uh, a vast drop off in the number of applicants, they also had a student retention problem. Kids didn't want to go back there the next year. They're going somewhere else. On top of that, they've had, shockingly, a reduction in the donations bought from alumni. People who say, what in the world are you doing, University of Missouri? You capitulate to a, to a mob? This is that mob mentality where there was nothing behind it. And you give in to these, these students who now feel, no doubt, emboldened to do other ridiculous demands. So they've had a... Um, they they talk about how they have a reduction in, in um they're going to have a budget shortfall a budget gap of thirty two million dollars and they speak about it they use the expression periodically in this announcement from University of Missouri unexpected Un- really unexpected I got to tell you folks this is a a really healthy thing I do not wish ill on University of Missouri or any college but I do think this left wing attitude that has developed on college campuses that makes young students feel like we get to choose an issue. It doesn't have to have any merit to it, but if we make a fuss and we create a mob, we make a protest, we're going to have, we're in charge. We're in charge of the adults. We tell the adults what's going to happen here and they have to listen to us. And if you think that is, you know, (laughs) these young students didn't get that message, look at how much Missouri, it was actually the springboard for other protests in colleges around the country. And so the pushback is kind of like the pushback that Target Corporation is getting right now. Target's discovering their idiotic bathroom policy is causing a massive reduction. We talked about this last week on the show. Massive reduction in their stock price. People aren't shopping there anymore. They've got an online protest. As over a million people have signed the protest. I, I feel like the silent majority, the rational Americans, the people who can still think straight, are rising up. And they're saying, you know what, enough of this craziness, enough of this left-wing, Obama-driven, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders-style craziness in this country. So I, I think it's, I'm sorry for University of Missouri, but I'm kind of glad that to see that the America we thought was there is actually really still there. Okay, another quick story I want to hit before we go off in the top of our break. 
Okay, we're going to talk about this again in the second hour, too. But there was a study at Harvard recently, and um, it was of students about their views of socialism versus capitalism. And I love this. I love it. Because to start with, this study of socialism came out with essentially talking about how these are actually not just college students, but millennials ages 18 to 29. Only 42% of them said they support capitalism which is free markets. 51% said they do not support capitalism. They had other portions of the study where they're saying that the majority supported socialism. But then you listen to that and you think, why am I sounding so happy? But then what happened after that was they actually dug in and did some questioning and some follow-up, like more in-depth focus group discussion with these students. And it turns out they don't know what capitalism is. What they were talking about and denouncing was crony capitalism was the government interlocked with the banks and the and the businesses and the government not looking out for the citizen and for the you know the uh, investor but looking out for the big corporate interests when they realized that capitalism was supposed to mean is free markets free enterprise that the numbers changed drastically they said okay oh is that what you meant in that case we're in favor of it i mean the numbers were so staggering the change was once they, they did think that the government should be um should be protecting people too much. They had like 48% said that one of the government's basic jobs was make sure that health insurance was provided to everybody. So that's kind of bad. But they had big switches in the numbers who thought that they that came to realize, you know what, after all, this free market stuff is exactly what I do like. They, they, the numbers changed. And then an even greater thing was another similar study reported. And I'm going to put this up in the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. you got to go Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. It's called Harvard Study Shows Millennials Oppose Capitalism, but do they really? There was another study which essentially by a different organization that talked to the same group of people. It was a study by the Reason Group Survey. Uh, it wasn't the same people. It was a study of millennials, and they asked them about socialism. When they first thought that socialism means that the government takes care of poor people, that we share. In fact, a lot of the definitions they first came up with, they said they support socialism, and they talked about socialism and viewing it favorably because it just means that people are going to be kind to each other, kind of like we're going to be together. In fact, that was one of the expressions. It kind of, socialism just means like being together. I think they, mean, they think it means like having a great time socially enjoying each other. When they came to understand what that socialism means is that no matter how hard you work and succeed and achieve and do well, you're not going to have any more money than the guy next to you who stayed home all day watching television. When they came to realize that socialism means force by the government, forced redistribution of wealth, forcing, limiting what you can earn, regardless of how good you are at what you do, all of a sudden they didn't like it anymore. In fact, that survey found a big switch once they explained to them that that's not really what socialism is at all. It's not about being nice. And when they were, they talked about they, the millennials who thought they liked socialism, many of them also said that they favor a free market system over a government-managed economy because they didn't know what the difference was. So I say this to say, we need in this country, among many other things we need to do, is to restart, to kickstart teaching about economic theory. Okay, we're almost up to our break on this segment. And I want to tell you that we have in the second hour of this show, uh, two of my leading ladies always join me every week. I call, them le- I call them leading ladies because they're conservative leaders. 
They are speakers, writers, they're thinkers, they're activists. They're all unique and they're empowering examples of conservative women today. And we talk, we, we, together we talk, you know, we kind of decode political talk. We hash out headlines. We talk foreign policy to domestic issues. We kind of scout out the political landscape together. We all embrace the power of informed women to shape the American political conversation. We are pro-women. We're pro-America. And we also all love our husbands and families. We're tuned in just in case you've been tuned out. And, and we talk truth about America. So every week, two leading ladies join me in the second hour. Tune in right after the break. for our second hour roundtable on Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's our second hour roundtable. Tonight, my two leading ladies joining me are Mari Sullivan and Lori Medina. And before they get going, I want to say we have a very short segment at the top of each hour. It's seven minutes. And so we are going to do a one-question rapid fire. Let them both weigh in on it. And before they do that, I'm going to tell you that... As you know, all my listeners, if you listen to the show very often, you know I love words, and I have two great words we're going to work in the conversation tonight, and then you can use in your vocabulary in the coming week. One is, and this is not related in any way to Donald Trump, but there is a word called, which is trumpery, spelled just like you would think it, trumpery. And it means something without use or value, rubbish or trash, or else nonsense or twaddle. As used in a sentence, his usual conversation is pure trumpery. So trumpery is one. Foozle is the other. F-O-O-Z-L-E. It means to manage or play awkwardly. Okay, now that I've set that up, we're going to turn to our rapid-fire question. So Lori is going to go first and tell me. So given all the factors that you have in this GOP election cycle, where we are with the candidates and the delegates and how many primaries we have left, you sometimes hear people say, Donald Trump and even some people in Fox News will say, or in other you know, pro-Trump outlets will say, you know, um, Ted Cruz should just get out of it, just get out right now. So without Trumpery or foozling it, Lori Medina, what do you say? <laughs> well, thanks, Debbie. You know, that's, that's quite a welcome. <laughs> nice to have you. Oh, I'm so glad we're best friends. You yeah. Know? <laughs> anyway, um, well, you know, that's a great question. And we've been hearing that all week, especially after, um, you know, the New York primary happened and then the Northeast primaries and Trump won big and all those. Well, let me just, I, I would just like to do, you know, I know it's a lady show, but I like to do a very short um, uh, sports metaphor. If you remember back in the Masters Golf Tournament, 
you know, the, the big masters this played. It was about a month ago. And Jordan Spieth, a nice young man who's doing really great. He was up five strokes, and he got to uh, hole 12 of the last day, the Sunday. You know, everybody was cheering him on. This was going to be a second year in a, win, in a row winning. Everybody was like, oh, my gosh, Jordan Spieth is so awesome. Well, we know at that 12th hole he collapsed. And I it think was it was horrible. like, yeah, it was, it was so sad. It was painful. And it was like a quadruple bogey or something like that. Okay, now let's transfer this to politics. If this were uh, the GOP uh, primary uh, nomination, the Trump people would be on the sidelines cheering and shouting, uh, everybody else just go home. Just give it to Spieth. And Spieth has it in the bag. That's what the Trump people would be cheering. The point is, is we're playing the game all the way out. To the rules as That's they are. right. Mm-hmm. Ted should stay in absolutely to the very end. And the rules are 1,237 delegates at the convention. We'll just see who gets them. You go, girl. Okay, Mari Sullivan, what do you say to the question? Should should Ted Cruz give in to pressure and just drop out of this primary because Donald Trump said so? Absolutely not. No, he should not drop out. This is a high-stakes chess game, and there are a lot of moves to be made before the GOP convention. As we all know, a lot of things can turn momentum for a candidate around in a campaign in an instant. I'm still waiting to hear about Donald's tax returns. Very concerned that there's something in there that could hurt his candidacy. He did very well in the recent primaries in the Northeast, and that result was not unexpected. Now the geography changes. And if Ted Cruz can stop Donald's momentum in Indiana, a contestant convention is very likely, and everything changes for Donald Trump, and he knows it. So, of course, he wants Ted out. Uh, Trump has 105 delegates. He's going to take New Jersey. After that, there is really no clear way for him to get to 1237 and clinch the nomination on the first ballot. That is his goal. His chances of being the nominee decrease once delegates are free to vote on the second and third ballot since they're going to vote their values and who can beat Hillary. Right now in Indiana, there's a lot of things in Ted's favor. He has a powerful organized ground game. Indiana is very like Wisconsin, where he did very well. Recent polls show momentum moving in his direction. The biggest factor to me is that Indiana voters know the primary results on Tuesday will keep Ted Cruz in the game or very likely ensure Trump's nomination. So all eyes are on Indiana. Ted Cruz has told the voters in Indiana this is a pivotal race for him and the Republican Party. I'm amazed at Ted Cruz, his accomplishments. He doesn't have the media. He's an outsider. He doesn't have the establishment. He has a clear agenda, a conservative agenda. He needs to stay in the race. And I am hoping that Indiana ensures that there is a two-man race up to the convention. Either Ted Cruz or Donald Trump are going to face Hillary. They need to hone their message and present compelling. Sorry, that (laughs) was my timer. (laughs) There, we, uh, sorry, they, they, I'm on a two-man race. Okay, thank you. And Hillary needs to, they need to be in the race. Either Ted Cruz or Donald Trump are going to face Hillary. They need to hone their message and present a compelling narrative of limited government and free markets to beat Hillary, who is eminently beatable. She's facing an enthusiasm sinkhole in abyss. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Our first rapid fire went pretty well as far as I'm concerned. I will tell you that I think it's a very exciting time in this race. All eyes in Indiana. Ted Cruz has a game changer in bringing on his vice presidential choice, making it public, Carly Fiorina. We're going to talk about how that will impact the women's vote. I think it will help. 
But in our next segment, we'll be talking with Jim Simpson. Jim Simpson, pardon me, who's the author of The Red Green Axis, an expert on the refugee program in America. And there's so many refugees coming here below the surface, you have no idea. You'll be shocked. Come back after our break. We'll tell you all about it. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. So happy you've tuned in. We have another guest on with this segment. And I mentioned before the break, our guest is named James Simpson or Jim Simpson. And he's the author of a book called The Red Green Axis. And I told him when I got this book, before I opened it, I knew what it was about from the title. But hello, Jim. Glad to have you. Hey, Debbie. Good to be on with you again. Appreciate that so much. You know, I want to just talk about what I mentioned uh, earlier in the show. A lot of Americans are aware that we are bringing many, uh, President Obama is urging America to accept many, many refugees who are coming out of the crisis in, caused by ISIS in Syria. And so many, many Muslim refugees coming to America. And those numbers are large and everyone is debating how many they really intend to bring and how many have been brought. But I love that you wrote in this book about just prior, just prior to any of the uh, activity with ISIS before this whole issue, America has been involved in, in, in bringing refugees to America under numerous different um, programs. And yep. I think people don't know about it. And so I want to have you, if you could, just give a brief overview of the different refugee programs that America ha- has and why, why they got put in place. Well. <laughs> in five seconds. No. Yeah. There, there is one refugee resettlement program under the Office of Refugee Resettlement. However, there are other programs that are very similar, and while they're not called refugee resettlement, the people in those programs get similar, in some cases identical, treatment. For example, we have the asylum program, and that annually brings in about 25,000 people a year now, and then they have created something called Follow to Join, which is the families of asylum seekers. So if somebody's asylum request uh, is accepted, then that person can tell his family to come, tell their families to come, and so that's another 15,000 a year. So between asylees and their families, we're looking at an additional 40,000. There's something called the Cuban-Haitian Entrant Program, which has been running at about 20,000 people a year now, (laughs) 2015, it's up to over 60,000. And a criticism of that program is that many of the Cubans come into this country ostensibly uh, leaving Cuba under duress or for some reason. They get uh, lined up with welfare benefits and then they go back home to visit. Now, if they were having such a hard time in Cuba, why would they be able to go back home and visit and kick their feet up and enjoy American welfare checks while they're uh, enjoying their time in, in Cuba? And the fact of the matter is a lot of those people coming in here, if they've come in with the uh, agreement by the Cuban government, then they're here for no good reason. We don't know exactly what those reasons are, but they are certainly not good reasons because, as we know, Cuba hates America, and Cuba will not let any of its citizens come to the America just because they want to. They have to be being used for some reason. There are also uh, trafficking victims. That's a very small number. 
and they're trying to get the unaccompanied alien children. It's sort of a misnomer, really. Uh, unaccompanied minors from Central America to be recategorized as refugees. They're no such thing. The, the refugee program has a very specific definition, and uh, the, the unaccompanied minors from Central America do not fit that definition. They are fleeing uh, perhaps um, a situation in their home country that, you know, it, it may be, they may be in poverty, there may be uh, poor economic conditions, but um, they are not refugees under any circumstances. And furthermore, they're not unaccompanied. For example, in 2014, when we had uh, about 65,000 of these supposedly unaccompanied minors coming across the southern border, there were an equal number of parents and families. So they all came together, and they may not have all been related to one another, but to say that they were unaccompanied is really misleading at best. Yep, yep. And we're really talking about 130,000, and that was in 2014. In 2016, they say now that it's going to be even a larger number. So let me ask this. Let me jump in because there are so many people coming in on different auspices. And I now I understand now uh, there is an organized effort to, in part, just uh, have more people aware of all the different refugees coming here. But you know, America's always held itself out as, you know, bring us your huddled masses. Yes, we yes, have yes. lots of money. We, have, we yes, can help yes, everybody. Yes. What is the reason that there is, in your view, that there is such a, a growing organized resistance to some of these refugee programs? Is it just money? Is it safety? Is it health? What is it? Oh, I think it's all of the above. I mean, in, in, in Texas, the, uh, the refugees coming into Texas, 25% of them uh, test positive for uh, TB. You know, uh, in, in 2010, President Obama lifted the ban on bringing um, uh, on refugees with HIV coming into the United States. So now we have 37,000 HIV positive refugees in the United States and the conservative estimate is the lifetime cost of taking care of those people is 17.6 billion that's from the center for disease control uh, it's probably twice that in reality and you know, in addition to the health things i i it's so hard in the show. I mention every week. I whine every week that we only have two hours once a week, and the, and you, Jim, you and I could talk for two hours sure. just on the subject. <laughs> but I want to jump to something. There is a, or a list of organizations, and the acronym to refer to them is VOLAGS. They yeah. are the uh, organizations that are charitable, allegedly, but they are part of the effort in settling refugees here, and they are financially incentivized by our government. They are paid essentially to take refugees and get them settled and the specific in, in various parts of the country but the specific thought i had is that i wanted to ask your reaction to is this so we have refugees many from islamic majority countries mm -hmm. muslim refugees coming to america yep. and the volags are going to try to out of their own convenience settle them near each other settle them in places because it's easier for the volag to say let's put all this big group in this place right. so doesn't that help but doesn't that cause america to start to have the problem like we saw in Paris and other places where we have Muslim-majority neighborhoods being created in part by our refugee program. Is that right? 
It, it, it's it's absolutely true. The voluntary agencies, as they have been misnamed, uh, they're government contractors, and even though some of them have religion in their names, like Church World Service or Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society or even the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, uh, make, on average, over $5,000 a head to resettle refugees. And what they're tasked to do is put them in a community. They seek, at first, communities with some kind of tie, either through relatives to the refugees or people with, you know, same or similar languages, same religion. And so they once a, a refugee community has been established, they will just keep on pouring more and more and more and more into that um, into that community, and they could care less if it if the community drowns in the problems associated with refugees being there for you know increasing numbers being there for decades. For example, in uh, Manchester, New Hampshire, where the Central High School they speak eighty-two different languages, oh and because God. of that language barrier, uh, Manchester schools uh, get the lowest rating in the state because, of course, the ratings tests are all in English, and people speaking 82 different languages can't pass the test. So, I mean, it's things like that. You know, in, 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 um, in Amarillo, Texas, where they have 36, uh, they have 911 calls being answered in 36 different languages. It's, that's these are problems that are overwhelming different small communities, and they do. They put them in there. Their job is to put them in there, set them up there, get them uh, uh, working, get them with, with uh, welfare benefits, set them up for welfare benefits, help them fill out the forms, work with them for about two or three months, make sure that they have a place to live, make sure they're getting food through food stamps usually, or and and welfare cash welfare payments refugee medical assistance or medicaid and once they've got them all set up they just leave so they're they wash their hands of it after a couple of months and those refugees are left on their own and the uh, community is left to deal with whatever they have to deal with regarding that refugee so yes in many places they're they are building Muslim-majority areas. And in places like Dearborn, Michigan, we do now have no-go zones, places where law enforcement just doesn't go, where they police themselves. And that will continue to grow, and it will grow in small communities, in large communities, wherever we are resettling large concentrations of Muslims. Jim Simpson, we're speaking with Jim Simpson, author of the Red Green Access. Jim, where can people go online to learn more about your with this issue? Well, they need to get my book, the, uh, the Red Green Access, which is available on Amazon. They can go to the Center for Security Policy website, centerforsecuritypolicy.org. And Thank down. you. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk? You know, this show races by every week. We have two hours, and this is our we have half an hour left. I meant at the start to say hello to our listeners in Columbus, Georgia, on WYDK FM 97.9. So glad you're joining us, and Lori's going to tell you something good. Welcome aboard Columbus, Georgia, and especially to our friends at Fort Benning. Um, my husband is retired military, and he was actually stationed there throughout the 80s. That was where he did his airborne and ranger training, and he commanded an infantry there and was a battalion XO. So 
Yes. Woo-hoo. My okay. husband is an awesome, tough guy. So yes, he is. Plus, welcome, he's nice. <laughs> Plus welcome like aboard, <laughs> Fort Benning. We have ties to you. We're so glad to have you part of the Ladies Can We Talk family. Thank you so much. Okay, so ladies, we did not engage in trumpery, nor do we foozle. <laughs> but I do want to have, speaking of trumpery, uh, but this isn't Donald Trump, we have a quick clip about Hillary, and I want to ask you your thoughts. So this is clip one, if we could play We that. haven't had a woman to be president yet, so we need to have a woman to be president. Being a woman running for president. Being the first woman president. Be a woman president of the United States of America. I cannot imagine anyone being more of an outsider than the first woman president. Who can be more of an outsider than a woman president? Honestly, I Okay, enough of her voice. You know, that is Hillary. And I wanted to play those because there's been a lot, a little discussion this week. She has launched a woman's card. I mean, literally, uh, a woman card, a singular, a woman card. Because, and if you donate to her campaign, she'll send you a pink. It looks like a credit card. It's you a are woman kidding. card. No, no, no. You actually get a card. <laughs> I thought about trying to get one, but I don't want to give her even fifteen cents. <laughs> but it's really interesting where this whole women's card is going to come out in this election cycle because, you know, she's playing it up big time. She's not getting the women, especially the young women's vote. They're not listening to her. And then Ted has added a woman vice presidential candidate. So I guess I want to start with how much you think Carly, I want to talk about Hillary in a moment, but enough on her. How much you think Carly is going to help or be an asset or not to Ted Cruz's campaign in Indiana and beyond? Either okay, one of you. First, can I say, woohoo? Yes, I know. <laughs> I love her. I do. I was I love so her. excited about Carly and, and you know, <clears throat> Debbie, uh, we've been excited about Carly from the very, very early days before she even announced that just her entrance into the field would just uh, bring so much depth into that, uh, you know, into the possibilities of who was going to be the next president. And, you know, we, we got to know her and we kind of, you know, we had a Oh, we had her on the show twice. We had her on the show, had an event at your house. I mean, we, you know, spent some time with her. Uh, she's an amazing woman. So, you know, we've got to spend some time and realize that uh, she is a great lady, a great representative for conservative women. So I am thrilled to death that she is his pick. Thrilled. I mean, I, over the moon. Over I, the moon. I was too. I really was too. And you know, it's a funny thing. She, Lori has mentioned, we've had her on the show. We've had her, we did have a, an event at our home where she did a fabulous job speaking. She's exactly the same all the time. Yep. She's just warm, honest, looks right at you, answers yep. the question. She knows what she thinks. She has a confidence that's not arrogant. She just knows what she thinks. I don't know, Mari. Do you, oh, you? I am so excited. I'll tell you what. She represents a very important issue for me, and that is she's all about accountability in government. And that is such a big issue in this race and in our lives every day. We've got a government run by people who believe in big government solving issues. They don't believe in the individual. They don't believe in free markets. They don't believe in the great American spirit of independence and entrepreneurship and success. They want to manage misery. And what she wants to do is get in there and say, what program is working? And if it isn't, why not? What results are we looking for? Let's get them. And if we can't get them, why not? And start to cut and get things working in Washington and have our elected officials and the unionized, invisible bureaucrats <laughs> held accountable. 
Yeah, I love she spoke about that numerous times in the debates and in her speeches. Yeah, she I, I love that about her. And it's really when you talk about the anger toward Washington, even preceding President Obama, there was talk for years about the growth in the bureaucracy, growth, growth in the federal government. Lots of candidates ran on it and just kind of got to Washington. And I think they just threw their hands up. It's just too hard. So here's another question for you. So what do you say to people who say, well, you know, Hillary's grading voice telling us that we should vote for her because she's going to be a woman. She's going to. But what do you say, though, to the people who say, well, did Ted Cruz play the race, play the gender card by choosing Carly as a VP? No, absolutely not. I mean, yes, of course, she's a woman. And of course, that will help with some women because the, it'll show they, you know, that he cared enough to choose a woman, but she brings so much more to the ticket than just being a woman. Unlike Hillary, where that's all she's got. Um, <laughs> you know, that seems kind of mean. Ah, <laughs> uh, but true. So, but you know, uh, 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 you know, the great thing about Carly is that she does have that depth. And Mari, what you said, um, you know, how she has this depth on foreign policy and understanding government and how it's too large. But for me, um, as a Christian, she has that depth on the social issues too. And if you remember back at your house when she spoke, one of the things that was really touching for me, you know, someone from California, you kind of have this thinking of, oh, she's from California. How is she going to be on the social issues? Well, you know, I mean, in front of our group, I mean, she really intimately shared in a very authentic way, her faith in Jesus Christ and where she stood on these important social issues. And so that's why she has the ability to take these amazing stands against Planned Parenthood that she did at the debate. Um, no one else took on Planned Parenthood like she did. And and I think that, you know, I, I love her for that. Um, and I, I think she really rounds out Ted. She makes him better. I love it. Not, you know, and I know we all... Everybody knows I love Ted, but I just think she makes him better. Yeah, it was really interesting. Even before he named her as VP, we I, I don't know if it was when you two were on the show or uh, other leading ladies, but we were commenting on how they just work well together. Watching them, yep. she's been working with Ted and his campaign. They just blend well. They meld well. Uh, and, you know, I think Ted would not have been serious, would not have seriously entertained her as a VP choice if she weren't conservative all around the board. Now, I heard some people comment this week. I did a bunch of Fox News radio interviews where people are saying, well, she didn't talk about the social issues very much when she ran for a Senate from California. Well, that's like, duh. I mean, honestly, you have to be wise enough to know your audience. You have to know what the voters there are going to want to hear. I don't think she went negative on the social issues, but she, you, it's, it's called wisdom. You speak what they want are, are interested in, in, in your viewpoints about. And speaking of California, Debbie, you know what she brings to this ticket with Ted? California? No. Yes. <laughs> she won the Republican primary when she was running for Senate. It, there was a, it was a multi-candidate field when she was running for Senate, and she won the Republican. Now, obviously, she didn't win the general election. We know that. But she won the Republican primary in California. So, I mean, I think that bodes very well for Ted. I think she brings a lot of connections. I, I've heard and been reading that the California delegations and voters are very excited that he chose her. So, I mean, I, I think this this is a very good thing for this upcoming primary. Absolutely. You know, Carly talked in the debates about America's moral compass when the Planned yes. Parenthood uh, sale of yep. baby parts became a big story. And it was so eloquent and moving the way she spoke about that. Mm. She did. And, you know, that is one thing you talked about rounding out Ted. It's funny because I think all of us, 
I think all the leading ladies, but certainly you two, we have been around Ted Cruz a little bit. Mm-hmm. We, we know his family a little bit. You know, he really, uh, he has a very serious demeanor. That's the term I always use for it. He's not the guy you say, hey, let's sit down and, you know, have a bezo and watch, watch a game. I mean, you just, he's not that guy, you know, but he is serious, substantive, focused, driven. And so she has more of a warmth to her. And, you know, it's funny because I've heard some people say, well, Ted Cruz isn't very, what's the word? I can't even think of it. Not friendly, but, you know, he's, he, he's not, uh, you know, he, he, he's not soft and fuzzy, but you know what? We're not trying to, you're not electing someone to be your boyfriend or your husband. This is a guy to run the country. It's like complaining about a football coach who's a tough guy. Well, see, yes, thank goodness he's a tough guy. I mean, I just, but I do, I, he's tough and she's, she's just a good, strong blend. She is wonderful on foreign policy too. She's very yeah. clear about what the risks are to our country and what we're facing in the world in the aftermath of the debacle that our foreign policy is in. She brings a lot of expertise in that area, which will be very helpful to our country and to his his nomination and hopefully his presidency. Well, and the last thing I have to say is that, you know, it's driving Trump crazy that he picked her. And, yeah. you know, you know, it is. I mean, after all of the nasty things that Trump said about her and her face and I mean, it was just ridiculous. And so, you know, he's good. I mean, you could just do a countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Trump is going to say something nasty about Carly. And let me tell you, Carly is going to wail on him and it's going to be awesome. Well, so- you know, what? I want to hit and let me just <laughs> maybe we'll play this clip before and then go to our break. We have a clip. She was talking. Talking about the fact that Mike Tyson, the convicted rapist, you know, boxer, was he had endorsed Trump and what Trump said about. It. Do we have time before the break, uh, Neil? Do we have time to play uh, shot two? I was actually interested to see an endorsement the other day by Mike Tyson for Donald Trump, and you know, Donald Trump saying, "Wow, all the tough guys are endorsing me." Sorry, I don't consider a convicted rapist a tough guy. And I think it says a lot about Donald Trump's campaign and his character that he is standing up and cheering for an endorsement by Mike Tyson. There you have Carly Fiorina taking it to Donald Trump about Mike Tyson. (laughs) Yeah, we'll talk about that more after the break because... Trump actually went out of his way to brag about it. It isn't like he just got endorsed. He put it out there on Twitter, was jumping up and down about it. So come back after the break. We'll keep on talking about Carly, Trump, Ted, even Mike Tyson. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. We appreciate you so much. This is, again, uh, there's something wrong. There's like a time warp problem out here because two hours could not have gone by, but apparently it has. One last segment I want to before we talk a little more about Mike Tyson. Um, I do want to thank the sponsor for this radio show. This radio show could not be possible without the company that sponsored it named GC Works. And GC Works is a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology and they deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. And truly from the bottom of my heart, every week I want to thank GC Works for making this show possible because it's so much fun I can hardly stand it. So I wanted to just say, this is an interesting thing, what a candidate should do. So Mike Tyson, apparently with no provocation from Donald Trump, he endorses Donald Trump. Donald Trump tweeted out, yay me, and he actually Donald Trump actually said, you know, Mike Tyson endorsed me. I love it. And he said, Mike, Iron Mike, you know, all the tough guys endorsed me. I like that, okay? I want to add one thing to this little story. So that's what Carly Fiorina in the clip before the break was saying was, you know, uh, I wouldn't be bragging about this. Mike Tyson is a convicted rapist. Well, interestingly, somebody at BuzzFeed dug up 
back in 1992 in an NBC interview, Donald Trump described the case. This is a rape where the victim described that her life had been ruined. She was a, a winner of a black USA, or at least one winner of her state beauty competition, and raped violently by Mike Tyson. And Trump described the case this way. You have a young woman that was in his hotel room late in the evening at her own will. You have a young woman seen dancing for the beauty contest, dancing with a big smile on her face, looked happy as can be. So what would you think? This is a blaming the victim statement. This is a blaming the victim. And I mean, just the media to me seems so determined to get Trump the nomination. And I think as they think, because at the end of the day, Hillary will beat him in the fall. And that's why they want Trump to get it. But you think this statement should be just screamed out by all the news cycles, by all the news media. But you barely you have to dig in to even find it that, that he said that back in 1992. And it's relevant to this whole discussion about Tyson endorsing Trump and Carly Fiorina saying, really, you're bragging about Mike Tyson? So first of all, what do you do when you're Trump? Do you just say no thank you to this endorsement? Or do you just say nothing? Or Yeah, I mean, no comment. I mean, the thing is, a lot of people are, you know, if you're a candidate for something like president, a lot of people are going to endorse you that you don't want their endorsement. You just don't ever speak of it. You don't ever say anything about it. Because you can't help who endorses You can help what you say about That's it. That's right. But he loves this tough guy thing. I mean, Donald Trump, he kind of liked the tough guy thing. Okay, here's another thing that I want to ask you about then. <laughs> and, you know, we have, we're, you know, I've noticed in this election cycle, and it seems like more than ever before that I recall, and I, I'm pretty darn political, but it seems like the media has taken sides early on in this GOP primary. I, I mean, whether it's websites that I used to enjoy going to, and they're all just, head, you know, twisting their stories to be pro-Trump or pro-Cruz. You can't really trust the news media as much anymore. You have to be willing to look at several sites. I mean, to me, Breitbart, which I love going to, totally in the tank for Trump. Drudge, totally in the tank for Drudge. Um, I don't know if you want to add some of what your thoughts are, ladies. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, um, I've completely turned off Fox News, completely turned off. And let me tell you, I am so much happier because of it. I'm incredibly happier <laughs> by turning it off because I was just mad all the time. But where do you I, get your news then? Uh, not from Fox. I get it online. Um, I love conservative review. I probably go there first. Um, I like the Federalist. Um, I like the Resurgent, the new uh, Eric Erickson site. Um, and I have to say, I've been a Rush Limbaugh listen- listener, active, avid listener since 1992, and I've actually turned off Rush. I still listen to Rush, and I think Rush is being fair in my experience of it, Lori, but I do respect your opinion. Another person that I like to listen to is Hugh Hewitt. Hugh Hewitt has interviewed every candidate, every GOP candidate. He always talks about himself as Switzerland. He comes up with facts and figures and interesting insights, and he is very, very informative. He is an excellent source of information, I believe. Yeah, I love Hugh Hewitt's show. Sorry, Lori. No, the other person I forgot, and I've been telling you to listen to him because I love the Steve uh, Steve Dace. It's, yeah. pretty, it's uh, spelled D-E-A-C-E, but he's out of Iowa and um, he's does a syndicated show, but I, I love listening to him. So. Yeah, I'm glad we're talking about this because I do think that people, it, it, we're getting, the, as we get closer and closer to the fall elections, 
People are paying more and more attention. And I think if, you know, fewer people than ever get their news from the newspaper. I mean, you may still get a newspaper, but newspapers have their bias. They're, they're usually either conservative or liberal, and you kind of know. And if you read the editorial page, you might even realize, even within the GOP side, who they like. But as more people acquire their news online, it's kind of part of being the responsible citizen, the responsible mm-hmm. patriot, to look at several websites. I will mention one. I hate to even say their name on the air, but I'm going to do it in order to, to deny announce them and this is this one website called conservativetreehouse.org or dot com. I don't know which it is, but whichever it is. It's it's dot don't go there. It is dot don't go there. <laughs> These people have been the conspiracy theory looney tunes. Yeah, yeah. Looney of looney tunes yeah. belongs to be locked up somewhere. Looney tunes who've had a conspiracy theory. They're Trump supporters. So everybody else, they can dig in with pages and pages of this convoluted conspiracy craziness. And I have people tell me, well, I read it on conservative treehouse. It's like, that's like saying I, I read the National Enquirer. I mean, or, or it's even worse than National Enquirer because everything about them is a conspiracy theory. So anyway, it's an interesting thing. If you want to be informed, you got to check several sources. Okay, I know one story I want to hit, and I didn't even ask you guys if you brought tweets or quotes for this last segment, but I want to share this one story because I think this is just a really interesting little bit of backfiring on socialist Bernie. So Bernie Sanders, Democrat candidate, Democrat socialist, candidate for president. Now, Hillary's a socialist, too. She just doesn't say it. But Bernie, at least, is honest enough to say it. So he held a news conference in front of the apartment building where he grew up in New York City in Brooklyn. And he talked about how when he grew up there, the neighborhood, which is called Midwood, was uh, very solidly Jewish at the time he grew up. But since then, uh, it's changed and it's now uh, has a very large Russian population. So he held a news conference in front of his old apartment building, nostalgic, here's where I grew up, blah, blah, I don't know, whatever he said that day, it doesn't really matter. He's talking away, so some New York Times reporter was at the uh, interview and he decided to go upstairs and talk to some of the people. And the woman was acting very positive, very excited. Oh my gosh, Bernie Sanders, presidential candidate. Her name was Farida Lazareva. Farida Lazareva. I'm going to put this on our Facebook page, ladies. Can we talk? And she's Russian. And so the reporter goes, wow, so you really like Bernie Sanders. To which she said, I hate him. If you lived under socialists, you'd hate them too. They make everyone poor. If it will be Sanders, we will have the same here. Everybody who comes from a communist country, Russians, Eastern Europeans, even Latinos from Cuba, feel this way. When you know what will happen, when you see it, you're Republican. That's what she said to New York Times reporter. I'm amazed he actually printed it. You'd think that he would uh, deep six it, but he didn't. This is an interesting thing. And a thing uh, we talk in the show about how Bernie Sanders has all this college kids support and he's pushing something that everyone who's ever lived under, under can tell you makes you miserable. I love that story. And I didn't read that story very many places. You ladies have both heard it, but I don't know where. Well, it, back to college kids' support for Bernie. They're in college. If they've just graduated or they've been out of school in the past eight years, I think there's going to be a big millennial move to the GOP because these kids are out there trying to get jobs in the Obama economy. And what they want to do is get jobs and move out of their parents' basement. <laughs> That's true. And you said something. Someone was writing about how one of the biggest cures for millennials who think they love socialism is to get out of college and try to start a business. Try to start a business. That's exactly right. Go ahead. Very tough. Well, there was a great article. It's called Mugged by Reality, the Eternal Recurrence. This is what happens to liberals. It happened to George McGovern. After he left, he he was a Democrat in the House 
in the Senate. He ran for president. He started an inn when he when he when he when he retired. And here's what happened: it went bankrupt. And he lamented after his experience in the bed and breakfast business that he wished that he would have had the actual in the trenches experience of running a business and seeing how tough it is. Because of government regulations. He said, I have such admiration for the people that get out there and get after it every day. If I had only known that, I could have been a better senator. I could have been a better presidential candidate. And it happened to Matthew Iglesias when he tried to get a license. This is a Washington Post reporter, very pro-Obama. He was tearing his hair out, trying to get a license to do something in business. Once they get mugged by reality, mm-hmm. their attitude changes towards yeah. big government regulations and taxes. Love that expression, mugged by reality. Well, folks, we're almost out of time on this show, and I wanted just to say a couple of things. This show, Ladies Can We Talk, is always an, and just is dedicated to the notion that we Americans, every generation of Americans, we have the obligation, the moral obligation to hold on to liberty, to hold on to the idea of America, to understand why when you wake up in America, do you wake up in the best country on earth? Why is it great? What makes it the most safe, most secure, most prosperous, abundant? What makes it good and great and then hold on to those things because there are very strong forces in this country in the american left who do not love free markets bernie sanders the fact we have a socialist candidate on the democrat side who's a serious candidate for president and he's an open avowed socialist this tells you how off the reservation the american left is so our job as american citizens is to hold on to the idea of separation of powers limited government rule of law all these precious gifts the founders of america gave us that's our job and to tie every issue we look at not just to well do i like you know the view of party x or party y do i like this view or that view but understand the choices we make today either perpetuate liberty or they crush it, they hurt it, they tamper it. And our job is to protect those things, understand how America's greatness, how we got so great, so we don't lose it. Well, you know, we're going to have to wrap up the show tonight. I'm sad to report. I want to thank my assistant, my technical director, Neil. Thank you to our guests, Grant Stinchfield, Jim Simpson. Loved having you both on. You both, I should have had both of you longer, but it's just too darn hard. Thanks to my leading ladies, Lori Medina, Mari Sullivan. My biggest thank you that goes to my listeners. I thank you for tuning in. If you want to get in touch with me, you can email me at ladieskinwetalk at gmail.com. Please follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. Go to the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page. We have great discussions going on. Just And, and lots of liberals post. Where we, we welcome liberals. We welcome everyone, men and women. And go to the Ladies Can We Talk website, ladieskinwetalk.org. We want to keep the conversation going about the goodness and the greatness of this most precious country on the planet Earth. This is Debbie Georgiatis and Ladies Can We Ever Talk. Come back every Sunday and tune in. We'd love talking to you. Thanks for listening to Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to ladieskanwetalk.org. Ladies Can We Talk, truth about America.